This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. I think the interesting thing that has developed out of this is that not everything at our place is going to come out of our office in faculty development. We've had some really good fill-in in our library because we have a, uh, it, it's a place that technically fits in with our health sciences. And so it's been a good access point for some of the services that used to be provided out of faculty development that maybe need to be supported by a larger audience. And, and for us, that's statistical support and writing writing support oh that gosh. are coming out of there. So, now, hold the phone. Yeah. You are the first sure. person we've talked to on the podcast in almost a year now who has mentioned the library as a resource for faculty affairs and faculty development work. We've talked, you know, of course, people mentioned human resources and organization development and education departments. You're the first person who's mentioned library. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. On today's episode, we have Dr. Lee Patterson, the Associate Dean for Faculty Development at East Carolina University, the Brody School of Medicine. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Kim. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. We've been having some great conversations, and I remember meeting you a couple years ago when I went down to East Carolina University, and we talked, and I remember you were like really enmeshed in your emergency medicine clinical work. So how in the world did you end up as the associate dean in faculty development? Well, I ended up here um, kind of as my own career evolved a little bit. This isn't originally what I thought I would do. I, I was a residency director in emergency medicine for almost 10 years. I think I'm still probably the most sympathetic to, to PDs as I am to anybody in, in, in the academic medicine. But um, while I was doing that job, I went back to school and got a master's in adult education because a number of the challenges I had in that job, working with curriculum, really dealing with accreditation and sort of changing accreditation standards were a real challenge for me. And uh, I went back and, and got a master's sort of one course at a time. And as I did more of that, I had I had a number of epiphanies getting that degree, but one of them was um, kind of a shift in my own reaction to my faculty. So when you're a residency director, sometimes your bigger challenges are your faculty, not your trainees. You have faculty you maybe don't know how, or at the, at the time I thought they just weren't doing things I needed them to do, like give lectures or evaluate residents or help us remediate a resident. And as I was going through the masters and doing projects for them, I, I did a project on, on evaluating learners and I had to formally survey my faculty and I was really stunned to see how few of my faculty had gotten good training on how to evaluate somebody or how to give feedback to a learner. And I can remember that semester thinking, oh, and, and it's almost like you're kind of deflated. I'm not angry at you anymore. Oh. <laughs> it just, I had that moment of, oh, it's, it's, you're not doing this to me. You actually don't know how no, to do the thing no I keep begging you to do. Yeah. Right, right. You, you didn't, um, you, you don't know how to do this. So I'm upset and we, we just, it was just a moment of this is, uh-huh, this isn't right. about you. And uh, the longer I was doing that, the more I enjoyed sort of shifting a little bit of that focus on faculty. And I think there comes a time for many of us in a role we have where we need to make a change so that we keep evolving ourselves. And, um, and I had started to help out in faculty development and help out in curriculum. I was helping the former dean and doing some programming um, in the space uh, on on different teaching techniques. And and I started doing more programming uh, around our institution on feedback and evaluation. And then the institution was ready to make a change and needed to do some shifting in academic um, affairs. And they needed to put somebody in as the interim. And and I got the opportunity. And for me, it was really right at that ten year mark. And um, and I, I, um, I thought, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm ready to make a change. And it was wonderful for me. I think I moved into that role and thought, oh, I can feel the idea of coming back. <laughs> you know, you, I think sometimes in that same role for so long, you sometimes run out of the fresh ideas and the fresh perspective and you've got to move a little bit. But a lot of it for me was, I, I think our bigger success as an institution needs to be a bit of a shift in focus for me from the learner to the faculty. Yeah. And it just, it's, it's been a great move, but I, I, I did begin in a very different place. 
Well, I love that story and how it started out. Sounds like uh, you know a challenge or a puzzle or or a source of frustration that you describe yes. this disconnect with faculty. And I'm curious, a chicken and egg thing. What came first, your work with accreditation standard? changes or your interest in the master's in adult education or were they kind of just kind of right oh, there alongside it, each other? Um, I think what came first was, was struggling with accreditation and struggling with answering to an accrediting body. At least in that case, it was the ACGME and, and sometimes not even understanding the question I was or the task I was being asked to do as the residency director um, and not having, not, um, not understanding the background, not understanding the process. Mm-hmm. And so I started the coursework more to just help me do the job that I wanted to do and the job that I loved for a long time. I started the coursework to do that. And it was probably about three courses, four courses into the master's that I thought, gosh, actually, I really like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like getting to think about this. Uh, and I like doing some of the projects for these courses and, and the course I did my master's at ECU and in the college of education there, they are very much focused on all of your papers and projects should be directly applicable to your job. Or for those of us who are real adult learners coming back while we're working a regular job that, that we draw from our experience. So yeah. I had done several different projects like that. One of them was a, was a paper on sort of the firsthand experience of a PD doing a remediation and, um, and I just, over time, doing that, found myself more, more and more drawn to the teacher, um, where I really, when I began my career, was very, very much focused on the learners. Um, and, and I don't regret that. I, it just is a shift. I think I experienced of, I love the students. I still love teaching. I still love working with residents and medical students. But I am more interested in, more challenged by, more... Um, enthusiastic about the challenges that the teacher faces than I am the challenges that the learner faces. The great story. Another great reminder how, you know, through adversity, we can find opportunities and look, you probably, you know, 10 years later, as you described, you never ever would have imagined, oh, someday I'm going to be an associate dean for faculty development, especially starting out MD in emergency medicine. You're like, that was not even on your radar, but these opportunities sometimes, you know, I think it's, it's, of course, your typical student and where you came upon a challenge and thought, I need to learn more about this. So this is probably something we all share that thirst for knowledge and growth. And again, voila, who would have known that that would have opened up a whole new, a gift no. that you were given that you now have opportunity to develop and then share that passion. Uh, thanks for sharing yeah. that story. Sure. So, so talk to me about the, you know, 10 years go by, you know, you're put in this interim position. I imagine, uh, despite your enthusiasm and like newfound empathy and appreciation for those gaps, you know, between teachers and learners, you know, you must have had lots of challenges and grappling with issues um, that you weren't even, you know, aware of, of course. How did that transition period go for you as an interim? Um, I, I enjoyed being an interim and I really appreciated my institution giving me a chance to do that because I really did get to try on the job. Um, and our, our institution had done what I think many schools have done, uh, you know, after the, the financial challenges in, in the mid 2000s, um, we had, con- we had really cut the resources in an, our office of faculty development, we had shrunk it down quite a bit. And so when I was asked to step in as interim, I was half an FTE and I had half an admin Oh wow! and with a plan of let's grow this, but we had really, we had shrunk, we had shrunk the resources there to the point where I honestly didn't for a couple of years, I worked here. I didn't know we had an associate Dean for faculty um, development. And so I, I got the, the very daunting challenge in some way to to start to rebuild that and regrow that. I got a lot of support and a lot of enthusiasm for it, but I got to try it on while we were beginning to think about what would this look like if we re-expanded these. Um, some of the challenges that I really liked, I had stepped out of a role that is very administrative. A residency director answers to accrediting bodies and licensing boards and um 
uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of administration in that job, and I kind of stepped out of that into the I'm here to help you. Um, mm. I am here to provide the programming and the counseling and the mentoring and the I'm here if you need me. Um, and I really I really enjoyed that. But over the time I had as an interim, which was a, a year and a half, I had another sort of shift in my thinking, which was. Um, while I really enjoy not being the heavy or not being the um, the administrator mm-hmm. that has that kind of responsibility as a residency director, I'm seeing that maybe if we don't have some more of those must-haves um, policies that that really push us to to um, have faculty engage with the resources we have that push us to develop those mm-hmm. that that I won't have anybody down there. Um, and so I had, I had good success. I had people interested. I had, uh, it, it probably took us a year to get everyone aware that yes, actually several days a week, someone is, uh, in our case, in the basement, our office is on the ground floor, um, faculty or foundational, um, but our, our office is down there. And so uh, it took, took me a year to get people to reliably think, Oh, Oh, there's somebody down there. And I could, I could send my faculty member who's, who's struggling. Um, and I liked at first not having that burden of we must have these offerings. We must make faculty come get yeah. resources. Um, and I've kind of shifted. I got to, I had a, a real shift in that of we're going to need to, we're going to need to habituate some of this, some of this. We're going to need to move as an office into a little bit of advocacy around policy and then really think about, um, about how we get faculty into our resources and how how we require faculty to to, to accept some help, um, uh, and and not just say okay we offer a great programming on how to flip your classroom, yeah. uh, come by if you want. Um, yeah. And so so I had some of that challenge in there. A little bit of a challenge when you're rebuilding and regrowing to know what to fo- what to focus on first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still um, now sort of three years into it. Um, I still am kind of grappling with that. Do I devote my, how much of the office's time and energy and resources goes into institution interventions? How much of it is devoted to one-on-one support for faculty and programming and and individual access um, faculty by faculty? And how how much of it is advocacy? Um, And sort of where do we... um, I really, I really believe we have to have an office that just advocates in some way for faculty success. Mm. That is 100% the faculty ally. Even if that faculty member is not doing what they need to do, somebody's got to be their ally in in this space. Yeah. Um, but if you if you don't take advantage, if you don't reach out and accept, if what we what we try to offer, what's my role then? Mm. Um, and with with your with your chair, with your dean, yeah. how, how do we do that? So we're still kind of sorting through where all do we devote our energies? Um, and we're a smaller school. So, um, so we, the, the upsides is it's, uh, we're never far removed from, from each other at all, but the downside is that that's all of us in the boat together. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's a small army. So how many, how you, you how you exert that? We have about 500 faculty um, across the across the space, um, and and that includes uh, some affiliate faculty in the community that we have. Now, I'm curious about this. Um, you, you know, you talked about how the office had been scaled back mm-hmm. during the recession and and finance struggles and challenges, and then built up. And during that interim period where you were there, um, you were kind of regrowing that. Can you help us understand some of the culture and politics around how you get the stakeholders to buy into that concept of, well, we just cut this back. Why would we want to build it up? Or like what data or, you know, anecdotal evidence did you have or did someone else have to support this idea of now we need to scale this back up again? I'm curious how those things, decisions get made. You know, we cut back, no, put it money in, no pull back, no put in. So can you um, paint a picture for us how that looked? Sure. And and I will tell you, the longer I was doing the work, the easier it was to find examples where people said, oh, we could use help here. Um, Some of the data 
came to us um, in the form of, of promotion and tenure challenges. We had faculty and departments not get promoted and not get tenure, and that was fairly unheard of for us. We had done a good job historically um, identifying and getting people help that they needed um, and getting them ready and not sending them to up, up the process for a state institution, not sending them up the line um, to to on, only to get rejected. Right. Uh, and at least during my interim period, we had a pretty significant challenge where, where we had some folks not get promoted and not get tenure. Um, and in the analysis of why that happened, we discovered a number of gaps and who's supposed to be helping you with this. And we discovered that we needed more than just a departmental committee. Uh, I think like many medical schools that do have traditional tenure, we do have a growing number of folks who are fixed term. And we had begun to run into some departments that had lost their institutional memory because they'd gone a few years without somebody going through the process. And, um, and so one, one place some data came to us of we don't have enough of this, um, has been in our, has been in our promotion and tenure process. One place that it has come to us has uh, been, of course, through our own school accrediting process. Um, as you have increasing standards uh, for for education, you need someone helping educators educate. As we have increasing needs for success in places, you, you find the holes that way. So the accrediting process highlighted a number of of um, Places where we had that, and then and then one place that has unexpectedly highlighted that uh, for us is um, some challenges we had in chair leadership. Uh, so a year, a little over a year ago, um, we were recruiting for a chair in one of our departments, and um, we needed to put an interim chair in, and we discovered we really didn't have an internal option for interim chair. And I was asked to step in, um, really thinking that would be a, a much more short-term fix. And as I walked into the space and sort of looked around and met with faculty and met with staff, it became apparent to us that we had places and pockets in our institution where, um, where we hadn't had any oversight, anyone checking in, anyone checking on mm. faculty. And, and we hadn't had, it wasn't really anyone's responsibility to do, to do some analyses of, is everyone okay here? Uh, Are we, and why are we losing faculty here? And what is happening in here? And, And those faculty had not had anywhere to go. And that became apparent in that process. And so, so I've had it come to me from several different places. During the time I was an interim, we got a new dean who came to us from an institution that had certainly much more, had had a larger uh, group of people working on, and, and a much more diverse group of people working on faculty development, faculty advancement, faculty excellence. And so one of his early moves was to say, this isn't going to work. Um, we need more of this and, um, and we need, we need, faculty affairs reporting directly to the dean's office. And and so we had a lot of support from just somebody coming in from the outside saying, hey, we do it differently other places, and I liked that, and so we need to make a change here. So I had, I had it coming from several places. Um, the, the promotion and tenure really helped us in my office kind of catch fire because we stepped in to help a department uh, with individual faculty and then working with the chair and then um, – that kind of that spreads, and then and then the next thing I knew, every every member of that department on the promotion and tenure committee was all set up to meet me, and I was meeting all of their interview. I was interviewing all of their faculty candidates and helping them do an assessment relative to their uh, promotion guidelines, and saying, "Okay, all right, here we go. Yeah. We can we can see some some space in that." Um, I think the interesting thing that has developed out of this is that not everything at our place is going to come out of our office and faculty development. Mm -hmm. We've had some really good fill in in our library um, because uh, it's a place um, that that technically fits in with our health sciences. And so it's been a good access point for some of the services that used to be provided out of faculty development that maybe need to be um, 
supported by a larger audience. And, and for us, that's that statistical support and writing writing support oh that gosh. are coming out of there. So now, hold the phone. Yeah. You are the first sure. person we've talked to on the podcast in almost a year now who has mentioned the library as a resource for faculty affairs and faculty development work. We've talked, you know, of course, people mentioned human resources and organization development and education departments. You're the first person who's mentioned library. Tell us more about this writing support and stat support from the library. Sure. And I wish I could take credit for it. I can't. This one's not my initiative. It's one we're collaborating um, to, to utilize and to promote. Uh, but we we are one school out of four on our health sciences campus. Um, and we, we, we used to provide writing support out of faculty development. When you look at it from a budget standpoint, that's, it was tough. It was tough to re, to re-add that back on again. Um, and it was tough to figure out exactly where statistical support would come. And so our lib- our head librarian, um, Dr. Beth Ketterman worked with our dean and, and felt like maybe out of, our health sciences budget, we could anchor that at the library. Um, and it's, it offers us a couple of benefits. Our, our librarians, our medical librarians are going to provide great counseling for you to do a lit search and how do you use your, um, how, do, how do you use your notation software? How do you use what we have here to help you, help you start your project? And so if you anchor the statistician and then you anchor the, the writing support there, then you've you've got people anchored to resources within there within our institution. Wow. So we um, have um, one day a week that is dedicated time for statistical support and for writing support. And both of those folks have guidelines about what you need to do before you can come and bring your project with you. But you basically sign up on the library website. Wow. Uh, what we're working towards is a place where, so this right now is open access for us, but with the research dean, with the the head of our library, we're working towards bringing our new faculty in. And this is one of those places where we have to say, you must do this. So maybe you don't really need them, but everybody on the tenure track is going once for statistical consult and everyone's going once for a writing consult and assessment. Uh, And 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 we'll present this as new faculty. This is one of your resources. You get to jump the line. Everybody else has to wait behind you. But here's here's what we have. And because I my work with the tenure folks who are not getting tenure or who are about to go up who weren't ready was really showed you you we had not well we may have had resources because we didn't force you to go. You didn't know it was there, and the faculty who most needed to know weren't the faculty who were finding it, um, who, who were who were even looking to raise their hand and ferret it out on on their own. And so, so we're really kind of trying to shift towards everybody has to go and meet with one of our three resources over at the library and and anchor. Um, so, so you know, in that space, but I, I thought it was pretty it creative. They put that over there. It doesn't cost the faculty anything. They don't have to pay. Right for- now, it doesn't. Right now, it doesn't. And so, we are exploring a cost-sharing strategy. Right now, the limited number of hours that we do have are supported by our health sciences budget. Um, and as we grow the resource, then each college will contribute. And then for uh, faculty who might want more help than the department would contribute. Um, and for departments who support and endorse a policy of let's let's require everybody to go and then after that it's optional, um, we would ask them to contribute more so that we could we could begin to expand services. So how does that work with your requiring faculty development of your faculty? So we all know the regulatory compliance st- Online yeah. learning modules, you know, kill it, kill us yeah. all. But yeah. how do oh, you they do. They how do, do you operationalize that X number of hours per year or term that a faculty member must participate in these things? How does that happen? So we're working on that. I, I can't say we've perfected that yet. We have we have what we have trialed out of my office is um, for for at least programming is a commitment to if you will tell me when it is the right place for you, we will, we will schedule that for you. So we are, you know, providing some of our programming and some of our counseling at 7 a.m. in the morning, some of the time, not every day. We're coming in and giving programming from six to seven 
in the evenings. Again, not all the time, but if I get a commitment from your division, your unit, that I can, that this is the right time, this is the time that fits in your work schedule, then we'll flex and come to you. Operationalizing it for all our faculty, again, we're 500 strong and we're not all, we are probably roughly 60% clinical and 40% tenure track or 60% fixed term and 40% tenure track. Um, And so we don't, if we're operationalizing and focusing on the tenure track researchers and, and um, uh, educators, then we don't have quite as, we really don't have as much, right. as many numbers that we have to tackle that way. But operationalizing that for that group of people, I think if we're flexible, here are the times that you have, you have six months to do this, you have six months to, yeah. to do that. It, it's something we can accommodate yeah. Uh, and and we can we can put in there um, with identifying who gets priority in that. Um, it, it's part of your annual evaluation. It does kill us to do all of those modules and to do all of that annual evaluation. But for the physician faculty, you've got to renew your license every year. You've got to do X number of CME on different topics depending on your area. Mm-hmm. Um, what's one hour right. for your own personal career? Once in the first year you're here to come sit down with the writing specialist. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think we can, I think we can do it. I think we can push towards that. And I think, um, it, I, I, personally, I think we're going to have to do that yeah. with our junior folks, bringing them in and helping them get, helping them get up and running. Um, yeah. I so, especially think that's, yeah, it makes so much sense with your new newbies. And, and I'm imagining that, there's a, a test out, if you will, function. We're talking at Hopkins with the joy of medicine and burnout and all that, that with all these regulatory compliance uh, online modules that we get threatened with, seems like weekly. Um, you have to do this module, you know, three days ago it was due and it's, it's only four hours and you have to sit there and click through, you know, all this, this content that people, our faculty said, well, is there, can we test out of it? So, you know, we're required yeah, to do so yeah. many things on a regular basis. If there were like a pre-test, it would say, yeah, you you still know it. You're good. That that would save that time. It would be such a win for faculty. So I'm imagining you probably have some system in place or will where some of your sure. more your tenured or senior faculty will be right. Thank you very much, right. Lee. But I I have 150 publications. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see anybody right. writing or no. I'm a statistician. I don't need to go to stat support. Exactly, exactly. And and certainly it's um and for this it's sort of. How are we sure? How are we sure we as an institution set you up to succeed? Right. You know, how are we sure we didn't put a barrier up there? So I, I met a week before last with one of our newest faculty in a department who came in with the rank of professor. So when he's coming, I had interviewed him for, for a department. I sat down with him. He wanted to come meet with me. I need to walk through what's available to me in faculty, and I need you to help catch me up on what the – help me catch up on the institution and know where where all the uh, the doors are right. to get to these things. So this is somebody who's coming in with full professor, and one of his early questions to me was, what statistical support do I have and who do I have to ask and where do I go? Um and I thought, okay, if you're you're asking me this and you're still interested in how much help can I get to help drive my program, then then my sell to a junior person who's early, who's entering is I'm giving you this is your one chance to get in the front of the line mm. for resources and support we have. That that's really how I would say this. And I wouldn't expect somebody who comes in, I certainly wouldn't have expected that professor to have to go. But his question to me was, how do I get there? Right. I know what I need. I know what I want. What's and I'm accustomed to sort of a system that's got to be navigated. I'd like you to help me shortcut this navigation. And so I, I don't, I don't envision this as more challenge. I envision this as how can we as an institution at least shift the conversation some of the time to you and what you're supposed to get and how are, and how do we know we as an institution did our part and, and, and held up our end of the bargain. Um, I do think that, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit when we've had conversations at the group on faculty affairs about what happens when we cut services for faculty in the short term, it saves us some money, but in the long term, we turn around and have to ask ourselves, okay, when the faculty aren't succeeding and the faculty are really the backbone of the institution, what did we do 
right. to contribute to this, and did and did we do that? And so, so it, it's, I certainly don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to contribute to a faculty member's burnout, but I do want to figure out how are we, mm-hmm. how are we sure we've done our part, and how are we sure we that you do know where everything is. Um, I, I've walked very intelligent, very well educated people who do much more complex medicine than I do through the tenure guidelines and and sort of watch them cross their eyes and struggle as they're trying to understand what are all the hurdles um what does this look like are we sure um and and I think okay you know, in some cases, some of you transplant organs into other human beings, and yet the tenure guidelines are, are or what we need to do and how we need to get there is is okay. not, um, yeah. it is, it's opaque, it's opaque, it's an extra challenge, why is this an extra hurdle, and so right. what can I do to remove the hurdles, and and what can I do also to remind the institution and administration and leadership these things these things matter. These things have to be, have to be um, available. Well, I like how you've, you know, it partly the institutional commitment to the faculty member is evidenced by the annual review. You said this is part Mm -hmm. of the annual review form and annual review process, which to me shows me as a faculty member, uh, other than, or in addition to starting off an annual review with how much money are you making us? You know, how many, what's your right. RVU and how many patients yeah. are you seeing and how many grants do you have? Part exactly. of that conversation should be, you know, how are you d- developing? Uh, where are some gaps in your um, program? What do you need? What mm-hmm. would help you be successful? So I like how you've institutionalized that as just part of the annual review process. And that to me is kind of telling me the story of how you, you are building a culture where it's expected that this is just part and parcel. This is how we take care of our own. You know, you're, you're part of mm-hmm. us. You're in the family. So we want to, we're here to help you. And it, that to me was, I, I resonate with that shifting the tenor of an office from one of remediation where like, it's almost like the principal's office where someone's, yeah. you know, a learner is putting a bad report on you or a patient has a report or a problem or some, there's some issue and you get sent to the principal's office or the office of faculty development for remediation, shifting that tenor to one of support. You know, we, we yeah. are where you, people want to go there, that faculty view yeah. it as a one-stop shop and there's lots of resources. And if you got a question, you go there. That, that, um, feeling is a lot more, um, you know, embracing and empowering versus uh, mm-hmm. someone waggling their finger at you. So it sounds like you have done a lot yeah. of work to building that culture of um, we're here for you and we we take your career seriously and you value, you have, you, you mean something to us, you have meaning, you have value, you're important to us. I hope so. I hope so. We're still working on it. Some of this is still very much a work in progress, but but it is, um, it, but I don't, I, I, I do, and I do think it's going to take us probably another five years to get us to a place where my faculty would say, yep, this is, mm-hmm. this is the institutional, this is the tenor, this is the attitude that, yeah. that, that you're talking about, about they care about me and this, is, yeah. um, this is a resource. Yeah. And, you know, we all struggle with that feeling of like not having every, almost every interview we do here in the podcast is, is kind of a lot of that, a little bit of anxiety of, oh my gosh, am I not doing enough? And it, I'm not making a difference. And, and that everybody seems to come around to the fact that our GFA, our group on faculty affairs family is at least during that professional development conference, at least once a year, we can all look at each other and say, yeah, I see you. I hear you. I feel you. I get it. (laughs) I'm doing the same thing. I'm walking the same walk and it hurts and I feel badly and I never feel like I'm doing enough. I'm confused every day, as Dan Shapiro says. It's all that kind of like, ah, yeah, we we, we feel each other. And knowing, despite that challenge, that one little interaction with a faculty member, you know, one eye contact, one meeting, one session, one whatever, um, can plant a seed that will, who knows where it'll grow. And who knows 10, 20 years from now when we've transitioned out of these spaces, somebody will be talking and say, I remember, you know, years ago, who I never would have known, but I met with Dr. Patterson about such and such. And my career took a whole 180. So you, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. We just have to have faith yeah. that 
everything we do and keep keep going on. You know, one step at a time, it's going to make a difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what else is going on? Tell us um, anything else um, that you're excited about coming around the bend or any uh, patterns or trends you're seeing or something you're kind of curious about? Would you like to share something so, else with us? One of the things I'm really excited about um, is a uh, Twitter chat that uh, Dr. Wendy Ward from Arkansas and I have been hosting for the last couple of months on faculty affairs issues. Um, it took us a little while to get this up and running. It kind of grew out of a group um, faculty affairs a uh, communication committee idea, uh, but it was really—it's been really exciting to say, okay, we—it's uh, been nerve-wracking. Wendy and I have done it a couple of times now, and I—I um, I didn't. I participated in Twitter chats, and I had no idea how challenging it was really to stand up one. Um, and and moderate it, but um, it's it's been a lot of fun and it's been exciting to to begin to try to generate some real time conversation. Because you're right, I think that GFA folks, um, you know, my office now has has three full time or th- at least three largely committed um, folks in it. So I now have somebody with me in my office, but. But this is our team, and I think many schools do have a smaller group, and, and the people, you know, the people at the next school actually have more in common with you or are more, more able to understand your challenge and offer some solutions than maybe another department in your own institution is. And so to be able to, to try to start ongoing conversations and options for people to connect and share information it has been exciting. So, yeah. um, Congratulations to you and Wendy. We just, you know, had a steering committee uh, call yesterday and everybody just so pumped up about this. And it, I oh, know good. it was a tremendous amount of work and I'm going to be you know, confessing here that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Luddite. I'm so old fashioned <laughs> and every year I forever will run into people um, used to be Harriet Hop, who who just would you got to get on Twitter. You got on Twitter. I was on Twitter yeah. for a minute. And I still think I have a Twitter handle, but I didn't. I'm like I don't know to whom I should tweet. I don't get it. And yeah. so I, can you give us like a little the the dummy version of for those of us who accidentally fell upon a podcast and figured out how to listen to a podcast, or like me figured out how to do a podcast sitting here in my basement. Um, how how does that work? Can you try to dis- sure. describe for us what is First of all, what is Twitter? And then how does one do a Twitter chat? What does that look like? Sure. So Twitter is a social media platform that allows you to share comments, to share links to resources, to share pictures, to share video, to share ideas. It's a great idea sharing platform and you can use it asynchronously or you can use it simultaneously. And um, if you're tweeting, you basically um, send your ideas out there into the Twitter sphere and whoever is out there could find them and look at them. You can follow people and you can have followers and those people who are following you can see what it is you post. Um, You can... um, you can tag using some different strategies. You can tag ideas. You can tag other people and places. Um, and then you can search for those tags and find ideas. So you might be able to search, for example, um, using a hashtag. You could search um, WAMC and you could find a lot of different things around there. You can search faculty development. You can search mentoring. You can search he for she and see a lot of things in the world of medicine and science um, that that really give you an inside look into conversations people are having about men supporting women in the workplace. Um, you can you can search many different ideas that way. Um, I think a Twitter chat is a lot like having. Um, uh, it's a lot like texting with a large uh, texting group, and you just don't know everybody who's on the group until they ad- identify themselves. Um, and so a Twitter chat is something that takes place at a place or time. And for us in in our faculty affairs, when we're using the, the second Tuesday of the month, 
in the evening. So we announce a time we're going to get on. We announce a hashtag we're going to use. Ours is GFA Talks. And we pick a topic. The moderators pick some questions to help start the discussion. And anybody who's interested logs on to the Twitter platform, types in the hashtag GFA Talks, and we float a question and they start responding to the question. Um, it can be a slow conversation or it can be a little racing conversation. It, it depends and because people are responding all at the same time. Um, so really it mimics a group discussion in a classroom without raising your hand. You just throw it out there. Um, but that classroom's really large. So, and that's, and that classroom's really who chooses to join it. So, um, it could be anybody who's on there, but for us, most of the people who are on there do the same type of work we do. Uh, their chats for medical education, their chats for women in medicine. Um, there are even groups who are using this as a, as a journal club format. Um, and you can then look at this later on in writing afterwards. So I'll post the transcript uh, to the GFA listserv and people can look at that and see if they couldn't participate or if they didn't catch all of it or they were struggling with the format. They could see what all the, the conversation looks like. Um, but it's really a back and forth discussion. It just is a little bit slower and it's in writing and um, and, and people are removed about it. But well, but as a social media gonna, platform, it connects us. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I didn't know you were going to post the, the transcript. That is hugely helpful because I, I'm sitting here we're, thinking, and and for those of you listening to this podcast, don't roll your eyes or feel free to roll your eyes. <laughs> I was thinking, gosh, can I just be one of these lurker people who just gets yeah. on on the second Tuesday and watches this to see Absolutely. how it goes on. Like, I'm not going to get called out for, you know, no. lurking and not saying anything. Mm-hmm. But in no. that and reading it on the listserv, that would, I think, be helpful for me to see, all right, I see what's going on here. I think I could do this or participate in this. And then I, and I didn't know that you could tag these things and search back because then I'm, I'm panicking thinking, well, if I'm going to be doing this, you know, Twitter chat, do I have to keep a notebook and write these things down and screenshot? How am I going to capture all this stuff to remember this link or that link or that resource? But Mm -hmm. I see, I didn't even Mm -hmm. know about tagging and then searching later on. So that's, no. Thank you for sharing that. It, it's great. People are sharing programs at their institution that maybe are accessible, but might be hard to find if you Googled them. So they're posting, this is what, this is a, here's a link to a program we do at our school. Uh, if that's on this topic, if anybody has questions or wants to take a look at it, we're posting articles. We're helping people. At least in ours, we're, we're trying to draw some attention to resources. So part of, um, what Wendy does and what I do is try to round up the resources we might share, uh, on the topic. Um, this past week, we were talking about implicit bias in recruiting, and there's some really fascinating, uh, interactive maps on the WNC website on yeah. the Women of Color Project where you can, you can look at your state and, and, and you can then import that into a slide if you're trying to do some, some programming at your own space with, with that kind of information in it. And so sometimes it's just nice to see what kinds of resources are shared. Sometimes you can ask a practical question. Um, one of the ones that came up this week was, hey, I, I know we ought to be doing blinded CV reviews. How exactly do you do that? <laughs> you know, how does, what are, what are you doing when you're in a small specialty and you, and it's easy to recognize the applicant? Um, yeah. And people were sharing really concrete strategies and sometimes the discussion's a little more global. Um, but, but it's so hard to connect, I think, outside of a professional development conference with this group of people and and so it's really nice to have that kind of forum and the listserv offers a listserv offers some this is a real-time conversation if i want to ask you a shorter question and i want to i want to go back and forth for a few minutes on a question and a topic um so that's been exciting you talked about moderating it so what is the natural like beginning and ending and is is in this giant classroom is is someone saying, oh, you know, let's take that offline or that'll be next conversation or we're running about out of time? I mean, how do you how do you moderate that and how do you start it and stop it and close it and address all those people in the room, if you will? 
to be honest, I'm still learning that. I'm still learning that. We're learning a little as we go, but the process we've adopted is to welcome people, uh, to kind of give a heads up, 10 minutes, we'll get started. Welcome, here's the first question. Uh, and people take a moment and the answers start, and, and the answers are a back and forth and a, and a question and other participants' question. We, we have a handle specifically for this called Fostering Faculty. So we have a Twitter account that, that um, Wendy and I share that is for this process. So we post from that and then we go to our own handles and participate in the conversation. Uh, and back, and it, it helps for one person to, to take the lead and, and drive the questions and, okay, it's time for another question. And it helps for someone else to float and help help the conversation get started. It takes a few minutes. And once it gets started, you know, we're a chatty group. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 we're only limited by the, our thumbs and typing the, typing the response on the phone um, to, to engage in that. And, and we determine how long we think it's going to take. Uh, and then for each one of the questions, but, but it evolves as it goes, just yeah. as it would in any classroom discussion. Yeah. Uh, and if you say, hey, we don't need to, uh, a second question, we're here, or things are slowing down, people aren't still posting, let's add another, let's go ahead and ask this question. Um, and then you hit the time clock and you say, okay, we're officially done. And people sometimes keep interacting. Uh, but you've, just like they would again in a classroom, they'd walk right. out the door and hopefully still have some good conversations awesome. uh, as they go. But Twitter yeah, but you're welcome to lurk. <laughs> it can be, it can be, it can be used for great, great things. And I promise, I don't think we're going to run into anybody. Most of us might not want to in a Twitter chat on faculty affairs. I really think you're safe there. I love it. This is such great work. And I love these creative, unique ways of bringing us together. And like you said, real time or searchable later off time. It's just, it's so valuable. Just sometimes like you said, you know, you know, or you've been at a conference, you've, you've heard or you met somebody, you overheard somebody say this, that, and the other. But by the time you sit there and noodle around on, you know, Bing or Google, you're like, it's exhausting. And then you get down that yeah. rabbit hole and you click on something interesting and you're, and you click, 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 and you're 18 clicks deep and you forgot where you were going. And it's just so frustrating. Yeah. And it's always nice to remember that. You know, GFA talks, uh, the podcast, uh, listservs that we, you know, at a moment's notice, someone can point you in the right direction more efficiently. It's just really reassuring. It, for me, I, I will tell you, I wasn't really sure about Twitter either, uh, but in emergency medicine, uh, open access online, um, medical education offerings are very big. It's a, it's a, it's a growing part of ours. And for us, we had, as a faculty in emergency medicine, at least, we had to go there because the learners were. Um, and so while we're, you know, you and I are really comfortable with the traditional peer review process for written articles, um, but we, we aren't as familiar with critically assessing online resources and, 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 um, and sources. And so you, it, you have learners today who go there first. Right. And if you don't engage in that, then you don't know how to tell them how to discern. You can't guide them in the space if you haven't spent a little time in the space. But the other thing that I noticed as I did move into faculty development in, in the year, in, in particular, I was interim, I was really trying to get to know a lot of our scientists because that isn't where I come from. So I needed to, to spend some time there. And I was surprised how many of them are communicating and um using the platform to help other scientists get to know them as young scientists and how much their information sharing in their, within their discipline in Twitter. I mean, it, it, um, for us here, that's one of the largest groups of faculty are participating in it. So I thought, okay, we're going to have to get into this yeah. if this is where you are. Um, and if you want to be recognized in this area, and this is a place where us institutionally patting you on the back is, is going to be valuable to you. Well, okay, here we go. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get a we're going to get a Twitter handle and give it a try. Right. Um, and so that that's how my office ended up getting a an, a, a Twitter account. Um, and it, it and it is some place that that I get feedback from my my faculty, particularly my junior scientists, that they like mm-hmm. they like to receive communication there and they like to receive recognition there. Another reason why we need diversity in all of its facets, you know, including age and generation, that we have to have people who are telling us 
how they want to get the information, where they where they yeah. are, and like we had our at Hopkins new faculty orientation just Tuesday, and so I love uh-huh. lurking and hanging around and kind of peering mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. Um, new faculty's shoulders to see what they're doing and how they're doing because everybody's got a device or a laptop or their phone and. I want to know, I know, how are, where are they getting their information? How are they communicating? Uh, what are they comfortable with? Because, you know, you're right. We have to meet them there. And in, in fact, be better if we had people who could, um, be ahead of them a little bit. So I know some offices yeah. have, have communication specialists and, and social yeah. media specialists explicitly for that purpose that you can't rely on old fashioned, PowerPoints and, and mm-hmm. you know, the ways we disseminate information, all that is good, but we have to really round out the portfolio by, um, as you said, so, so, you know, aptly that young faculty, they first go on the internet. They're, they're Googling and they're, they're going out looking at social media to get information first versus the way mm-hmm. we get information. So we really have to right. be a little bit more creative and uh, meet them where they are. Yeah. Super cool. I love, mm-hmm. I love the Twitter stuff. I, you've kind of gotten me excited about it. I was nervous because I really just don't know. Again, I always feel stupid. I go like, what am I going to say? And I, and I always think of <laughs> people just want to like see my, my dinner or like when I first was, my family and friends were twisting my arm to join on Facebook and I did 10, 15 years ago for a minute. And I'm like, all I'm seeing is food. Why is everybody just posting pictures of their food? I don't have time to right. shoot my hamburger. So, and I, and I quickly learned that, oh, now it's passe, you know, people just use it to share pictures of grandkids and kids and whatnot. So I can't keep up with this stuff. And I, I do just, again, confess to my ignorance and, um, but it's, so it's something I'm, I'm, I know I'm stubborn about. And that's why I need diversity. I need people who are, who are, are different from me, who have different ideas and, who, who can help nudge me and hold my hand and, and show me how, how we can do it. So thank you and Wendy for that great uh, venue for us to talk to each other. You're welcome. We're enjoying it. So um, closing up here, Lee, anything else you'd like to share with our family before we say goodbye? No, this is, uh, I'm excited. I, I really appreciate getting a chance to talk about this today. I, um, I have really, really loved this career move. Um, this is this. It's been a good three years so far, and I'm I'm excited about it. So, um, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it. Yeah, it's it's. I think people who are new to our field and our space love to hear stories of how people get here, and every yeah. story is different because nobody goes to school and says they want to major in faculty affairs and faculty development. No. And the stories no. are just so wonderful because they really show that we have a heart and some somehow we have this heart and a passion for helping other people. And, and so many of us come this way because we recognize that, Oh my gosh, I like, it feels good to support and help and encourage and inspire and motivate and, and just be there when people need something. And, and so that's, I think what most of us land here just by virtue of wanting to do good. And this is, they find out that this is a space to do that, that, um, really makes a difference. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but, but I think we all know and can reassure each other that we are making a difference. So thank you, Lee Patterson, the Associate Dean for Faculty Development at East Carolina University, the Brody School of Medicine. And thanks to everybody else out there listening to the Faculty Factory podcast. Please come back and join us again next time. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.